uh, say it to you yet. Uh, Happy New Year uh, to all of you. Um, Hope and and pray that it's been a a good one so far. Um, You know, culturally speaking, in America, the beginning of a year tends to be a time when people think about their lives and things they'd like to change. And that old buzzword of New Year's resolution is something that, you know, all of us think about. Um, maybe just with a show of hands, how many of you have New Year's resolutions made for 2019? A few? You're very much like the first service, like 15% or so. So we have high achievers here at Bethlehem. How many, how many of you um, thought about making New Year's resolutions? Anyone thought about it? Yeah, and just like in first service, more hands went up when it comes to, to thinking about it. I did, I did a little bit of research in regards to um, New Year's resolutions, and there's already been some data as far as what are the top 10 um, resolutions uh, for 2019. Some polling's already been done. So here are the, this is legit. This is not a goofy list. This is, this is legit. So uh, the, the 10th most common would be spending more time with family. Number nine, uh, drink less alcohol. Number eight, uh, find a different job. Was not on my list, just so you know. (laughs) Seven, uh, read more. Six, quit smoking. Uh, Five, learn a new skill or a hobby. Four, save more and spend less. I like that one. Um, Three, lose weight. Two, exercise more, and number one, diet or eat healthier. Not really many surprises on there, is there? Um, I'm guessing for many of you, if you did put resolutions down, that something similar to uh, many of those uh, have been on there. What's also not surprising is that the percentage of sort of follow-through on resolutions has uh, stayed pretty steady over the last two, three decades. Um, It's hovering right around 8% of resolutions actually have follow-through for a year. You go beyond one year and it gets, you know, worse than that. Now, here's the other interesting part, and it's probably true for most of us, and statistics bear this out, is that one of the reasons why resolutions don't actually sort of grab hold is because more than 50% of Americans who make or have resolutions have no real plan or intention to carry it out. Over 50% have resolutions that have no plan or intention of carrying out. So you know what resolutions are? It's just a time to dream. Like, if only. This is what I would like. But I'm not going to do anything to make that happen. But I would like to, you know, lose this or have that or go after this or whatever. Over 50% of people. So resolutions or goals all by themselves are not really that powerful. There is something about naming where you want to go. Totally get it. But how about this? More powerful than the goals that you make are the habits that you form. More powerful than just the goals that you make are the things you do on a day-to-day or a week-to-week, depending on what type of habit it is, basis, are going to have much more of a lasting impact 
than just purely making a resolution or a goal. Now, there's a, another factor to habits taking root, one that I want to get to in just a moment, because this series is all about this reality, that more powerful than the goals that you make are the habits that you form. So one of the things that we're hoping is over the next three weeks, because I'm just the intro guy, I'm just getting, setting the, the foundation and getting you to think about one little bit of homework that we'll come to later, is ideally our prayer is that you come away from this series with three habits that have the chance to make a big difference in your life. We're not going to even necessarily tell you exactly what the habit should be for you, but we're going to look at three different areas of life where we firmly believe biblically a habit will absolutely make a big difference. Now, the other thing about habits and their success is something that you probably haven't thought about but I believe you'll agree with me, and it's this. That the success of personal change increases when the desired change is connected to a bigger picture. The success of the the things you want to change in your life will have a better chance of happening when there's a bigger picture than just the change itself. Let me give you an example of this. For someone who's just been diagnosed with lung cancer or emphysema, there's a much better chance that they're going to quit smoking. It's not a perfect chance, but a better chance in the new year than someone who doesn't. Why? There's a bigger picture. There's a story there. There's a better chance for someone to um, run, to get running and to get in the habit of running if they've got a half marathon waiting for them in the summer than if there's nothing waiting for them in the future because there's a bigger story there. There's a better chance for moms and dads to actually spend, you know, the, the time we've always felt like we should with the family versus work when you recognize that your children are juniors and seniors in high school and you've only got a couple of years left. The story behind the change makes a big difference. So, today in the intro to this series, I have this simple encouragement for you as over the next three weeks we'll talk about habits, would be this. Determine the story you want to tell. Because if we want to change, and I know you do, and if change requires habits, and I think you agree with me on that, daily habits, and if a bigger story helps us to keep the habit going, let me ask you, what's the story you want to tell? Because if you find habits that are connected to the story you want to tell— there's a better chance of change. Now, this idea is not one that I came up with, but one that I bumped into in reading a number of years ago. There's a, a classic uh, leadership and life book um, called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, it's, it's a deep read, but it's a really good read. A man named Stephen Covey, towards the beginning 
of the book has its re- his readers go through this exercise, and I'm going to force you to go through it right now. He writes, In your mind's eye, see yourself going to the funeral of a loved one. Picture yourself driving to the funeral parlor or chapel, parking the car, and getting out. As you walk inside the building, you notice the flowers and the soft organ music. You see the faces of friends and family that you pass along the way. You feel the shared sorrow of losing, the joy of having known that radiates from the hearts of the people there. And as you walk down to the front of the room and you look inside the casket, you suddenly come face to face with yourself. This is your funeral, three years from today. And all these people have come to honor you, to express feelings of love and appreciation for your life. And then he goes on in a more wordy way of what I'm going to summarize to ask this question. At your funeral, three years from now, what would you prefer that people are saying about you? (laughs) What would you like the, the eulogy to say from the people who are the most important in your life or the people that you work with or whoever? What would you like their eulogies to say about you? What type of character? What type of priorities? How would you like them to describe you as a husband or a wife, a mom or a dad? And as I go through these questions, of course, if you're anything like me, there's a little bit of guilt or maybe a lot bit that pops up into our hearts. But what I really want you to do is to be inspired by that because today is not your funeral. And to determine the story you want to tell and maybe the way you do that is by thinking of the end at the beginning. And as you do that, if you're anything like me, one of the things that happens or a realization that comes to mind is this. That some of the things you naturally want or have resolutions about or think are so important to go after in the new year or just in life are in conflict with the things you ultimately value. Some of the things you naturally want are in conflict with the things that you ultimately value. I don't know if any of us would want in that eulogy for them to say, you know, he, he always drove a nice car. I don't know anything else about him, but he stunk to work with. But he always drove a nice car. Eh, you know. Or she always dressed well. She always looked the part. I, I never really saw her with her family, but <laughs> she looked good. And that list could go on and on, right? And so often the things we focus on on the the most, the point here, the things you naturally want sometimes are in conflict with the things, or if they're not in conflict, they're not as important as the things that you ultimately value. Now, all of this we've talked about so far, even if you're someone here today who's not a Christian or doesn't believe in God yet, all of this will be helpful for you. You don't need to believe in God to think about the end of your life and how it will influence the present in your life. But for those of us who are Christians, which 
is the majority, if not all of us, right? There is another question that we need to ask that actually is even a little more important than the first one, but they go together. Not just what story do I want to tell, but what does God want for my life? It's impossible, Christians, to really have a good answer to what story do I want to tell without also asking the question of what does God want for us? It absolutely goes together. What type of character does he want me to have? What type of priorities, what type of, you know, life goals would he want me to have? And that's what we're going to focus on in part for the rest of the the time that we have uh, together right now. I, I want to open your heart to the bigger picture and to also hopefully share with you through scripture the power of habit. And to do that, we're going to turn to this letter in the New Testament. It's called Galatians. Um, Galatians was written by a first century church planter or pastor. His name was Paul. Uh, Many of you know he wrote the majority of the New Testament uh, by God's direction and guidance. And whenever he wrote a letter, it was usually to a group of Christians in different towns across the Mediterranean Sea. And it almost always had to do with addressing some sort of conflict or problem that was going on in the spiritual lives of that congregation or that city. Galatians is no different. And the thing is that the problem that they were going through was of utmost importance because it if they believed the lie, would ultimately rip them away altogether from God and from heaven. And here's what was going on. This congregation was made up of a lot of Christians who were familiar with the Old Testament laws. All the laws like celebrations, to, like the Passover to celebrate don't work on the Sabbath day, um, don't eat pork, um, be circumcised. All of these laws in the Old Testament that were really important for them, they began to teach and believe amongst the people that in order for them to be part of God's group on his team, beloved by God, you had to first follow all the laws and then you might have a chance of God loving you. And so the entire book of of Galatians, Paul comes back to over and over again the theme about freedom. That as Christians, we can have freedom from the Old Testament laws that does not define our actions anymore and certainly is not the way to get to God to love us. It never was that. And maybe one of the verses that sort of summarizes the main point of Galatians is this from Galatians chapter 3. He says this, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. How did uh, you get to have parents? Even if you were adopted, you really had nothing to do with it. You become a part of a family in most circumstances, basically having done nothing. And that's the reality when it comes to being a part of the family of God. You have done nothing. Jesus Christ did everything. His death and his resurrection is the reason why you and I can every time we pray and every day we live, consider God not as some 
almighty, all-powerful, angry guy who we better watch out about, but instead we can view him as a loving heavenly father who cares for us more than anyone else in the world and has an inheritance waiting for us better than anything our parents could ever leave us in heaven. And the thing that Paul wanted the Galatians to understand and the thing that is so important for you and I as we consider the story we want to tell is our next fill-in for today. That at the heart of your story is your identity. And that identity is not pastor, is not dad, is not husband, is not assistant coach or head coach, is not any of those things. My identity, my core identity is child of God. And if we can better understand and remember who we are, it makes a difference in how we view the story we want to tell. I would say this it is absolutely essential to the story that we ultimately, as a believer or as a Christian, would want to tell. Now, here's what Paul recognized. And I think you're going to feel this inside of your heart too sometimes is that the danger with salvation by grace, where you don't need to do anything for salvation, is that people begin to think they don't need to do anything. Let me say that again. We don't need to do anything for salvation, so we get the opinion that we don't need to do anything at all. Paul recognizes there's something in our nature that'll take salvation as a gift of grace and heaven is total gift and allow the pendulum to swing all the way to the other side that God doesn't care about our actions. He doesn't care about changes in our lives. And he certainly wouldn't care about a series like this because salvation is a gift. And Paul recognized that type of lie we can tell ourselves. And so at the very end of the letter in the last chapter, Knowing that people have that tendency to think that way, that actions don't count for it, it doesn't matter. He writes this, don't be deceived. Why? Because we have the tendency to be deceived. Because we have a tendency to trick ourselves. And then he goes on with some really strong language. God cannot be mocked. Don't be deceived because you were thinking God could be mocked. Now, what does that mean? Now, the first thing that struck me in this verse that wasn't brand new to me, but I haven't preached on it ever, is the stark power of the word mock. In, in the Greek, it, it has the idea of a disrespect. You know, like, if you don't like someone... You can be mean to them. You shouldn't be, but you could, right? You have a tendency to be mean to them. But what's worse than being mean to them? Like mocking them, right? Making fun of them. It, it, it goes towards their, their very identity and who they are. Mocking is horrible. And, and some of us might be thinking, how did the Galatians mock God? And certainly I've never mocked God Shown him disrespect. Here's, here's how it continues. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. What, what Paul is saying is this. 
is that when we think that what we do doesn't make a difference and God doesn't care because, have you ever said this, thought this, or lived this? I, I've, I've heard it said from my, I don't know about my lips, but from my heart probably, and I've heard it from other people. God will forgive me anyway. <laughs> I can do this now because it looks like a lot of fun and it'll be a lot of fun and oh, grace is awesome. He'll forgive me anyway. And you know what Paul is saying? That type of thinking is not only sin, it's a mocking of God. It's thinking that you can kind of pull the wool over God like he's an old elderly person that can barely see and, you know, we're going to do this behind his back. You know, and when you really think about it, God who knows all things, like how dumb is that type of thinking, right? And Paul calls us out and says, you know, that type of thinking is mocking God. That in fact, what we do does matter to God. And in fact, a man reaps what he sows. Hmm. I've, I've heard sermons preached on this, not necessarily from our circles have I heard this, uh, but online sermons and such, um, where some will say that this is a law that Paul introduces that is always true and always accurate. So basically, it is just a rule or a law, a principle of life, that if you're kind to people, that people around you will be kind to you. That if you're generous to people, people around you will be generous to you. How about this one? If you're generous to God, you're going to be rich because he's going to give you double, right? Because a man reaps what he sows. Now, have you ever been kind to someone who wasn't kind to you? And then they weren't kind to you, I should say? Yeah, so I don't know how it could be a rule or a law. I don't think we go into what we do for the reason of that it'll come back to us either. But what is true from this verse is this. And this is starting to lead us towards habits. Your actions have consequences. Your actions have consequences. Um, if we've spent 18 years putting work first and family second, we'll probably have a good job and not so much of a great family life. If we eat more calories than we burn, there's going to be consequences, right? We're going to enjoy food. But we're probably not going to lose weight. We're going to gain weight, right? Your actions have consequences. That's what Paul is saying. A very easy understanding thing that the things we do today will have consequences, either good or bad, in the future. I mean, and, and it's true in general. If you're kind to people, if you're a forgiving person, don't people tend to give you the benefit of the doubt more than if you're always judgmental? And people tend to judge you, right? So this happens in many different ways, with kindness, with generosity, but it's not a tit-for-tat type of thing. It's certainly not a rule or a law. It's just an understanding. And sometimes things come back to you in this earth, but there's another part of the picture. 
Verse 8, Paul continues. Whoever sows to please their flesh. And this word in the Greek doesn't just refer to your body, but when this word is used, it's um, referencing like our sinful desires or prioritizing the world above God type of idea. It has the idea in sin. Whoever sows in their life to please their flesh over and over and over, from the flesh will reap destruction. Um, A couple applications here. God gave us the Ten Commandments and his directions for life to be a blessing to us, not to be an anchor. And so when we don't follow his direction, which were meant to be a blessing, it often leads to a worse outcome in, an earthly li- in our earthly lives. And ultimately, when a person lives to please their flesh, please their flesh, please their flesh, ignore God, ignore God, ignore God, eventually it might mean, doesn't always mean, but might mean eternal destruction, as someone might in that case lose faith, ultimately. But on the flip side, whoever sows to please the Spirit, who considers God in what they do, who, who, who follow God's directions, not perfectly, that's where we need salvation by gift and, and uh, forgiveness as something given, not earned, to please God or the Holy Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life, will reap blessing. You see, there's a bigger picture that we need to think about when it comes to what we do and the story we want to tell. It starts with the fact that our identity, our core identity is child of God. But it also has to do with the fact that there is not just a physical application to the things that we do in this world. There's also spiritual blessings or consequences let me, let me give you a quick example of a spiritual consequence. We're going to talk more about this next week. But if, if we never spend time with the Lord in prayer or the word, we will reap what we sow. And we may not lose faith necessarily, but I guarantee that our trust would not be as strong. And so number three fill-in for today is this. As you think about habits over the next three weeks— Choose what you do with God in view. Make God a part of the habits and the actions that you choose. Make sure you're thinking not just about the physical, but the spiritual. Make sure that you understand this, which is really powerful, that your life is bigger than this life. Your life is bigger than this life, and our stories should reflect that. The story we want to tell, the story we should tell, should reflect that. Verse 9. So Paul says, let's not become weary in doing good or doing the right thing. You know why he needed to say that? Because we get weary in doing good. I was trying to think about, is there any area of life where doing the good thing or the right thing is easier than doing the wrong thing or the immediate satisfaction thing? And I really couldn't come up with much. I mean, the only thing I could think of is like, 
if somehow God created you with warped taste buds that like broccoli tastes better to you than like ice cream or something, you know, something like that, then maybe eating good, you know, is not hard, but almost all the time, it's harder to do the right thing. Jesus said that the way is narrow in following me. He says, pick up the cross and follow me. He doesn't say, whoa, follow me. And it's so easy. No. And so Paul says, let's, not become weary in doing good. First and foremost, because your identity is that of a child of God. Most and foremost, because our life is a response to what he has already done. But then Paul goes on this way as well. Don't become weary in doing good because I want you to realize, I want you to think about this. That at the proper time, it might be during this life, it might be in eternity. Don't become weary in doing good, in being kind, in being humble, in forgiving as Christ forgave you. Because at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And for some of us, we may not see that harvest until we get to heaven someday. And that Eternal life is our harvest. But I I do believe, I do think, I do know that what Paul is saying here is bigger than just waiting for heaven to reap the harvest. That God promises that a man or a person reaps what they sow. And I am like the furthest thing from a farmer um, that there could be. But I do love the imagery that God uses through Paul in this section. And I just, I want to use it as a a visual illustration for you. So he says, there's sowing that happens. And this is like, this is a cantaloupe seed. Anyone like cantaloupe? I like cantaloupe better than broccoli. So maybe God bless me in that way. But a little cantaloupe seed, when you sow it or put it in the ground, okay, it has the potential to grow. Now, If you put it in the ground and just leave it and ignore it, it's probably not going to grow. And just some miracle, the conditions were just perfect, right? But usually, you need to have habits. You need to water it daily. You need to um, pull weeds. It's really not the hard work, but there are small things that will eventually make a big difference. Like, isn't that, I went to the store this morning looking for a watermelon, okay? I did not, this shows you how much I grocery shop. I did not realize that they don't have watermelons at this time at Cub. (laughs) They did, but it was like the size of this cantaloupe. So I went with the cantaloupe. Anyway, look at this. Little seed, lots of habits, big harvest. Little seed, continual time and habits. Large result. And in fact, from one seed, there can be 10 cantaloupes, really, right? Maybe in money terms, it's the series, uh, I'm sorry, the sermon theme. You can think of it this way as compound interest, right? Like um, if you're in your teens and if the interest rate is between 8 to 10, which I know that's high, more like 8, I guess, um, in your investing, if you put away $100 um, a month by the age of 70 or 75, you'll be a millionaire. Um, Not because it adds up to that, but because with interest, it grows. It's 
a sowing that reaps a harvest. And as we close today, here's our last fill-in for today. Even small habits can make a big difference over time. What we're going to be asking and encouraging over the next three weeks is not going to be terribly hard, terribly difficult. It's not because we know you and we want to set the bar low. No. It's a recognition that sometimes we have all these goals and these visions for life that A, don't work with the story that we want to tell, or B, is just so much that we do none of them. We might as well put fly to the moon on our storyboard or our vision board because that's about as likely as all the other things are going to happen, right? But what if, if habits are powerful, that we think of instead of lots of change versus the right change? Little habits in the right areas can make a huge difference in our lives. And so we're going to look at three areas, spiritual, emotional, and the physical parts of our lives over the next three weeks. And all we want, all we encourage is one habit, one little habit in each of those areas that have the potential to make a big difference. And so your homework for this week is this. If you went to your funeral, what story would you like people to tell? How would you prefer your eulogy be written? And how does that affect the change you'd like to make in your life? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that the hard work in our change has already been done. You have taken us from sinful enemy of you to a dearly loved child because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But at the same time, while there is nothing to do for salvation, you've done it all, we have a life that can be lived in response to what you've already done. And we would ask that over the next three weeks that you would guide and bless us to discover the story that you want us to tell and that you would give us your Holy Spirit to create just maybe just small habits that can lead towards big change. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.